Please uh, keep your Bibles open there. And I think there's a, a short outline in the service sheets you were given as you came in the door. Let me pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you the, for the Bible. We thank you that it is your word to us. And we ask now that by your Holy Spirit, you would teach us, you would challenge us, and you would change us to be more like your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen. Back in the old days, we used to write these things called love letters. Uh, they were ep- often they were epics, pages and pages of anguished expressions of undying adoration, uh, of soppy laments of misery at even the shortest of separations, or in many cases, just sheer pathetic dribble. <laughs> That's opposed. And much better even than the love letters of today, aren't they? Which is just a text message that says, I heart you. I mean, what is that? Seriously. But the success of a great love letter is really in the beginning and especially the end. The beginning is important of a love letter. You don't begin with, how's your mother? No. You've got to start with something solid yet vulnerable, that just exposes the depths of your heart. Something like, you are the sunshine of my life. (laughs) Why do birds suddenly appear every time you are near? Now, just in case the brilliance of that is lost on some of the young people... You might want to start with something like, because all of me (laughs) loves all of you, (laughs) loves your ferns and or your hedges, (laughs) or your perfect imperfections, because I give my all, all to you, and you give your all all to me, oh, (laughs) powerful and strong, isn't it? But the ending, the ending is the most important part. You, you, You can't end with want to go to the footy on Friday night. No, 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 no. You've got to end strong. You've got to end with your best Line because this will be the lingering memory of your letter. Something like, your father must have been a thief because he stole all the stars and put them in your eyes. Are you guys taking notes? (laughs) If I could rewrite the alphabet, I'd put you and I together. Never fails. (laughs) The Apostle Paul, who wrote this letter to the Corinthians, uh, Paul who wrote it, he wrote it kind of like a love letter. Not of the romantic sort, but of a spiritual kind. In this letter, 
uh, Paul the Apostle writes some very hard things to the church in Corinth, which in many ways is fractured and many of them are behaving badly. But he says these things because he loves them. It's a love letter and it's tough love. And like all love letters, he has to end well. Now, it's kind of odd to talk about the end of a letter when you've not read the whole letter. And some of you may have read it, some of you may not have read it. Let me tell you briefly what's in the letter, because I just want to have a look at the end of it tonight. In this letter, Paul the Apostle speaks of uh, his integrity in his ministry to them. He speaks about being God-powered and God-enabled in his human weakness. He speaks of his sacrificial, persevering service and his Christ-centered, gospel-focused preaching and teaching amongst them. And he also writes to keep them on track with the gospel, particularly warning them of the presence and danger of false teachers that had come among them and, and people that he refers to as the super apostles who have bedazzled some of them and are leading people away from the gospel and away from Christ. But he also writes to them to keep them on track with their behaviour as God's people. Now, some of their bad behaviour is probably a result of the false teachers amongst them, like the division and discord that they saw in the church, but there are other things as well. Just to give you an idea, if you look at the Bible reading, and chapter 12 and uh, verse 20, now I'm sorry, I've, I, I don't have the same version that was read out, um, but I'm sure you'll cope. Chapter 12, verse 20, he says, For I am afraid that when I come, I may not find you as I want you to be, and you not, may not find me as you want me to be. I fear that there may be discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, slander, gossip, arrogance, and disorder. And I'm afraid that when I come again, my God will humble me before you and I will be grieved over many who have sinned earlier and have not repented of the impurity, sexual sin and debauchery in which they have indulged. That gives you a snapshot of the kind of behavior that was going on amongst Christian people. And these things were not only ungodly, but they damaged the church. They damaged the body of Christ. And so he gets tough with them. And then in chapter 13, verse 2, he says, I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it while absent. On my return, I will not spare those who have sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. And if you go to verse 10 to help explain what that is, this is why I write these things when I am absent, that when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up and not tearing you down. So what he's doing here is he's warning them of impending spiritual discipline 
that he will apply should they continue in ungodly behavior. So he gets tough with them. But this is not essentially a cranky letter. If you read it, there's a lot of, I'm warning you. But it's not essentially a cranky letter. It's like I said, a love letter. He's strong and forceful because notice at the end of verse uh, 10 there, of chapter 13, he will exercise his disciplining authority to build them up, not tear them down. Why? Because he loves them. Uh, Back in chapter 12 again, uh, just before the, the passage that we read in verse 14, Chapter 12, verse 14, he says, Now I'm ready to visit you for the third time, and I will not be a burden to you, because what I want is not your possessions, but you. After all, children should not have to save up for their parents, but parents for their children. So I will very gladly spend for you everything I have and expend myself as well. If I love you more, will you love me less? In other words, he's saying, I'm willing to give my all for you. That's how much I love you. Like a parent will give their all for their children. And he doesn't want anything back from them. He wants them. And what he's saying, he wants them to be saved and to know Jesus. In chapter 12, verse 19, chapter 12, verse 9, have you been thinking all along that we've been defending ourselves to you? Now, we have been speaking in the sight of God as those in Christ, and everything we do, dear friends, is for your strengthening. Everything he does is for them, for their benefit. And that brings us right to the very end of this letter. And and he begins the end of his letter with uh, verse 11. You'll see there, chapter 13, verse 11, uh, with these kind of sharp commands. They're punchy and they're penetrating. Uh, Look at verse 11. Finally, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Strive for full restoration. Encourage one another. Be of one mind. Live in peace. Uh, In the original language that the Bible was written, which was ancient Greek, uh, all of these uh, commands here are one word. Except for be of one mind, all the others are just one word in the original Greek language. So they're supposed to be kind of punchy so that you can remember them. It's like, you know, just before school holidays, there'll be the ads that come on the TV and on the radio and on billboards, which is stop, revive, survive. Okay? It's that kind of thing. Stop, revive, survive. And what he does with these five punchy commands in verse 11 is to hammer home some of the points that he's already made in this letter. These are not five random things he says. They're themes from the letter. The first command, rejoice, verse 11. Here he wants to leave them on an upbeat note, not the I'm warning you note. Uh, And earlier in chapter 1, verse 24, Paul says that his ministry is for their joy. His ministry is for their rejoicing. So he says at the end, rejoice. Second command, strive for restoration. That is in the relationships in the body of Christ. That is, if there is fracture between people, and there was in that church, they should strive to fully restore those relationships. 
Again, in the original language, it actually says, restore yourselves. And he says, restore yourselves because division damages the body of Christ. Do you have fracture in your relationship with anyone here? Do you? If you do, sort it out. Restore yourselves. Do it tonight. Restore yourselves. And do it because this is God's word to his people. The third command there in verse 11 is to encourage one another. Again, this takes us right back to the first chapter where uh, the apostle was encouraging them to encourage, uh, sorry, to comfort one another. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 5. But the word comfort in chapter 1 and the word encourage here in chapter 13, again, in the original language, is exactly the same word. Same word. Encouraging one another. Comforting one another. It's quite the opposite, isn't it, to what we read in chapter 12 before, where we, you know, we talked about rage and anger and slander and gossip and all that kind of stuff. Quite the opposite. Can I ask you, who will you encourage tonight? Who will you encourage tonight? This is God's word to us. Do it. Don't wait for others to do it to you. No, you tonight. Who will you encourage? The fourth and fifth commands in verse 11 are be of one mind and live in peace. The two really go together. And in a church there that was divided, he urges them to live in peace. Be like-minded. Being like-minded, of course, goes a long way to living in peace. But briefly, they're the short five five short commands that Paul leaves them with. And notice, except for the first one, rejoicing, although it is talking, I think, about rejoicing together, all those commands are about relationships with one another amongst God's people and bettering those relationships. That sounds really good, doesn't it? Except people are so annoying, aren't they? <laughs> People can be so stubborn and judgmental and narky and inconsiderate and mean and prickly. They might be sitting in your chair right now. <laughs> Think about that for a moment. How important is it then that we understand the assurance at the end of verse 11? Did you see that? Look at the end of verse 11. As we do these things... That help our relationships within the body of Christ. And the God of love and peace will be with you. God will be with you as you seek to do these things. To do what he asks you to do within the body of Christ. And quite frankly, you couldn't do any of those without him. But you can and you must with him. God will be with you. Go and do it. 
Now, in verse 12 and 13, verse 12, he talks about greeting one another with a holy kiss. I'll tell you now, no one knows what that really is. And anyone who tells you they know what it really is, they don't really know. I think it's quite clearly greet one another warmly in some way, but I don't know what the holy kiss is, so let's move on. Verse 13 is the kind of everyone says high acknowledgement and that brings us to the very last verse of this love letter. Let's see how strong does he finish the love letter. Verse 14, chapter 13. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Can I say that there is nothing, absolutely nothing greater that you could wish for a person than this. This verse over time has come to be known as the grace or the blessing or a benediction. What it is, is a prayerful good wish. A prayerful good wish that you have for another person. And of all the things that you could prayerfully wish for another, can I say, this has got to be the ultimate. You could wish the sun, the stars and the moon, or the riches of the world, or the health and happiness and coffee and ice cream and chocolate a person could cope with, but it wouldn't be as brilliant as this. Because look at what is being wished for prayerfully wished for for another three things one the grace of the lord jesus christ would be on them or would be with them paul here meant that his desire his prayerful good wish would be that they know the salvation that comes through jesus death on the cross for them. The death that paid the penalty for the sins we committed. The death on our behalf that we did not deserve, that we did not ask for, but that God graced to us freely in His Son, that God gifted to us freely in Jesus. Having the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be upon you, is to receive God's unmerited, generous gift of His Son. And to have Jesus through faith is to have the forgiveness of sins and life eternal. Let me ask you, not much can top that, can it? Those who have been confirmed tonight know that grace. And have put their trust in Jesus. Their sins are forgiven and they have eternal life. And I wonder if you are here tonight and you have not put your trust in Jesus in the way that they have. I wonder if tonight you'd be willing to put your trust so that you can have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. If that is you, ask someone tonight. Ask one of the confinees. Ask one of the people that you've seen up the front. Because there's nothing better you can have than the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. But secondly, 
Paul's prayerful good wish is not just that they have salvation in Jesus, but they truly appreciate it and understand it and have actual experience of it. And so the second thing he wishes for them in this final verse is that the love of God will be with them or that the love of God will be upon them. Now, of course, the love of God is most supremely, most supremely shown in the death of Jesus. Paul wants them to know that Jesus died for them because God loves them. It is a demonstration of God's love for them. You know, I think we all want to be loved, don't we? I don't think there's a person on earth that does not want to be loved. May I say, every one of us has, by God, in Jesus. Yeah, the amazing thing about God's love for us in Jesus is that all of us were loved when we were at our worst as well. Not when we were at our best, but when we were sinners and we did not want God. Some people in this world don't feel loved, or there are times where they don't feel loved, but can I tell you, know for sure, you are loved by God in Jesus. But God's love does not end with Jesus. God's love is expressed in many other ways. He, God loves us by caring for us as a father, by protect, protecting and guiding us like a shepherd. God provides in need and in plenty. He gives comfort in sorrow. He sheds tears with the grieving. He grants strength to the weary. He's always near and never far and many, many other things. Paul's prayerful good wish is that they have this love and know this love. Not much better you could wish for someone than to be enveloped and hugged by God's love. What a comfort and what a joy. And you know, when God shows his love to us, he doesn't just zap us and go, feel loved. He doesn't just insert warm fuzzies into our heart. And he certainly does not post a meme. No. We experience God's love through his word as we see his deeds and embrace his promises. And we experience God's love through others, through his people. And this leads to the last blessing that he prays for them. He prays that the fellowship of the Holy Spirit will be with them. Now, fellowship is the word used in the Bible to describe the special relationship that Christians have with one another based on the relationship amongst God the Father, God the Son and the Holy Spirit. And that special relationship that Christians have with one another, this fellowship is based on the fact that we all have one Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Everyone who puts their faith in Jesus receives the Holy Spirit and so we are all bound by that same Holy Spirit. And that fellowship then is expressed in being together, in gathering as God's people in caring for one another and loving one another and serving one another and doing all those things as 
family. Why? Because fellowship is more than simple friendship. Fellowship in Jesus is family that has been created by the Holy Spirit. And Paul the Apostle doesn't want them just to have head knowledge. He doesn't want them to just have head knowledge of the theological reality that we are all one in Christ. No, no, no. His prayer is that they'll experience God's love in the community of people, fellowship as a family. And it's a fellowship not only created by the Spirit, it is enabled by the Spirit. Because this special fellowship amongst Christians is not something we can do or achieve by ourselves. If it depended on us, you know, it would quickly descend into anger and division and gossip and slander and fits of rage and hate and fracture and all those things that it's talked about before. But the very next book of the Bible, Galatians, talks about what the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, what the outworking of the Holy Spirit is. Galatians 5, it says, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All those things are about relationships, aren't they? All of those things and more are needed to have the fellowship that God intended us to have by His Spirit. And God's Spirit is the one that makes it happen in us. The Holy Spirit then brings us together. Holy Spirit keeps us together. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing more wonderful, is there, than to wish a person is surrounded by love and kindness and warmth and joy of eternal fellowship and family. That a person would never feel alone. That there is a shoulder for every tear and an ear for every hurt and a hug for every grief and a laugh for every joy. And an arm for every weakness. To know and have and receive God's love through His people by His Spirit. It's awesome. But not only to receive it. But the privilege of giving it to others. Because it's fellowship. You know, ultimately this prayer... (laughs) In verse 14, is a prayer that people will stay Christian, stay trusting in Jesus, stay in God's love, stay in eternal life. And so I think for this Christian love letter, you cannot finish much stronger than that, can you? You know, traditionally, uh, Anglican Christians have said this verse. To each other. Uh, After they gathered together, they'd say this to each other as they were leaving. It's a dying tradition, but it's a great tradition. One, I hope maybe we can resurrect. Because there is nothing, nothing more precious you could desire for another person. There is no kinder word you could say And there is no warmer wish you could pray 
then may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have demonstrated your supreme love for us in the Lord Jesus, that in him you have given us your grace, so undeserved and so generous. We thank you through Jesus and through your love we can enjoy fellowship together in and by your Holy Spirit. Father, we are so grateful. We are so thankful. And Father, we pray that we might be people who desire this for each other and for those who don't know Jesus. And we pray this in his name.